Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on April 26, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. If you listened to last week's show, uh, you know that uh, I was joined by Leo Valetsky and Jen Oliver uh, for a broad-ranging uh, uh, discussion of questions surrounding the opioid overdose uh, crisis or epidemic. Um, and we covered a bunch of topics there, including prescription drug monitoring programs and their uh, sort of diminishing returns as we get into the later phases of this particular uh, epidemic, and talked about uh, other issues such as well-regarded evidence-based public health interventions, such as syringe exchanges and uh, safe injection facilities and so on, and some of the law enforcement and uh, questions about uh, misalignment of federal and state and local, in many cases, policy uh, and uh, laws. So we're going to continue uh, the discussion today, or at least uh, uh, Jen and I are going to continue it, to talk a little more about the current opioid litigation, uh, which has had some interesting little spikes in its long and winding road over the last few weeks. So let me welcome back uh, to the show Jen Oliver is an associate professor at West Virginia University in the College of Law and School of Public Health. This spring, she has been a visiting research scholar at the Petri Forum Center at Harvard Law School. And in the fall, she'll be joining the faculty at Seton Hall Law School. Uh, she teaches torts, evidence, public health law courses, uh, and has been directing the Veterans Advocacy Clinic at West Virginia. So, uh, Jen, welcome back. Thank you, Nick. And let's talk litigation. Where do we start? Where have where have we got to? We, we know that there are two basic sort of uh, locales. There's the the Cleveland litigation, overseen by Judge Dan Polster, and that's what's called the multi-district litigation. And we might need to start by sort of talking a little bit about what that means. And then we also have various states bringing their cases not in federal court, that would then presumably get transferred, consolidated in Cleveland under the MDL, but bring them within their own uh, state courts. And obviously, typically applying their own state laws to uh, uh, these actions. So uh, do you want to start, Jen, by talking a little bit about the MDL and what that is and where those cases are and what's going on? Sure. So as you mentioned, uh, Judge Dan Polster on the Northern District of Ohio has a huge docket called the Multi-District Litigation for Opioids. There's some odd 1,500 plus cases right now on his docket. And how the MDL works is folks file cases in various different federal, one of the 94 federal district courts. And at some point, a panel called the multi-district panel decides that there's enough of this type of litigation that is similarly situated out there in the federal districts that it needs to be consolidated for pretrial purposes with a single district court and district court judge. And then the panel assigns uh, that litigation and transfers all of those cases to that judge. And uh, Judge Polster has that honor in the instant situation. 
litigation. So everyone who is litigating, federally litigating right now, from tribes to folks representing uh, babies uh, with neonatal abstinence disorder, states, counties, cities, anyone who's sued in federal district court right now has been consolidated and are in aggregate litigation right now in the Northern District of Ohio. Judge Polster made a promise to us, uh, Nick, I know you were in the audience, uh, that the, he was going to try to wrap this up and settle it quickly uh, because of the nature of the crisis. But it has indeed drug out as these things tend to do. And um, right now there is not a settlement and we are scheduled for the first two counties in Ohio to conduct their bellwether trials in the fall now. And that's been delayed several times. So that's where we're at. And I think that folks have eyes on those two uh, bellwether trials to see um, how the def- various defendants are going to react, whether they're actually going to put themselves through a public trial or try to negotiate a pretrial settlement. One of the things that, that people find uh, somewhat uh, confusing about the MDL is if it's all about pretrial work, it's the depositions, it's it's uh, discovery and so on. What are these trials, these bellwether trials? How do they fit into the puzzle? That is a really interesting point. And some folks who know a lot more about uh, complex civil litigation than I have argued that this sort of wasn't the concept. The concept was once you got to the trial stage, the cases would go back to their home district for trial. Uh, but this litigation has evolved through mass torts and product liability over the years since the statute was enacted in the 1970s, that judges hold these bellwether trials in an attempt to sort of let everybody see what's going on and then force a more global settlement. So uh, I do think that Judge Polzer was very honest that he wanted to avoid that. But given that no global settlement has been reached here and they don't seem near that, um, they will have to go ahead and um, have bellwether trials to sort of set the stage, hoping then, of course, that the remaining parties will actually reach a settlement related to what happened during the sort of liability assessed during those trials. Like I said, and there's two counties going first um, in the instant litigation. As you noted, they've already been delayed a couple of times and I, I wouldn't bet on them taking place in 2019 myself at the moment. But I think the, the what the Bellwether trials presumably would be trying to do is to sort of narrow some of the issues down and also to get a sense as to perhaps how juries are reacting to certain types of evidence um, and even what kind of numbers may uh, get thrown around. The other question, of course, that seems to be buried in those bellwether trials is quite a difficult causation issue, Jen, which is the extent to which the plaintiffs in the MDL have to prove that a particular plaintiff or patient, perhaps one should say, because the plaintiffs are not patients, but a particular patient had suffered from opioid use disorder because of, for example, drug company overpromotion. And the bellwether trials are going forward not on the basis of evidence of a particular individual patient, but rather on statistical likelihood of the overpromotion causing uh, the OUD. Um, Whether that's a good theory or not, and how a jury might react to that, I think is is part of what those bellwethers are going to um, be, be playing with. If the bellwethers get further delayed and settlement is further delayed, I think at last least part of the reason for that is going to be placed at the feet of the state actions. And I think there are a couple of of reasons for that that you may or may not agree with. Uh, First, it's extremely hard for me to see the drug company defendants 
in Cleveland where they are joined by pharmacy benefit managers and a bunch of other healthcare distributors uh, and players. It's hard to see that group settling for anything less than a global settlement. And it is remarkably difficult, I think, to see how that global settlement can take place when most of the states, um, I think there is one state in the MDL and some states, of course, have already settled out with the defendants, but there's still a huge group of state plaintiffs bringing cases in their own courts. And it seems unlikely that you're going to see a global settlement in Cleveland without an attempt to wrap those remaining plaintiff states into the settlement. The second thing I think that makes the state uh, litigation interesting is that to an extent, we're now seeing bellwether trials, though they shouldn't be uh, technically called that, but bellwether settlements, bellwether negotiations going on outside Cleveland in the states, which may have an effect in, in sort of valuing the cases. Do you agree with any of that nonsense? I actually agree with all of it. And um, as you know, the Oklahoma settlement was such a big deal for the very reasons you state. We haven't seen the actual page-by-page settlement, but one of the hot-burning questions is there were counties and municipalities on the MDL in litigation. And the question is, and this is a matter of state law, what authority the Attorney General of the state of Oklahoma had to do a global settlement that removes any Oklahoma entities from the MDL and settles on their behalf and whether they did in fact do that. Speculators who know a lot about this assume that one of the reasons why Purdue was willing to settle in Oklahoma was because they did get those kinds of concessions, meaning that Oklahoma, all Oklahoma entities are finished now and that $270 million number is sticky on Oklahoma. So I agree with everything that you said. I think that everyone's looking at this number, how it was used, how many, what the fee generation was here, which was $60 million, uh, the types of claims. And particularly, how global was it, at least in the context of Oklahoma? Would it, in some instances, be better to peel off these jurisdictions, especially large ones, um, in state actions early on, rather than allow those powerful states to stay in the MDL? But I agree with everything that you said, and I think that Oklahoma is such a good example of that. And I guess for the record, we should point out that the other thing that has happened prior to the Oklahoma settlement, and history may well report it as a cause, of the Oklahoma settlement has been the increased aggressive filing, typically by states, against the family uh, that primarily owns Purdue uh, Pharma, uh, which is the Sackler family. And we have seen in the filing by the Massachusetts Attorney General some really quite staggering allegations, all of which have been denied by the members of the Sackler family, um, about uh, how they allegedly encouraged distribution of uh, their drug, OxyContin, in its various forms, uh, and also allegedly um, uh, planned uh, to, to profit further uh, from um, the the opioid crisis. We also saw, I think it was a, a, a leaked 
a deposition from the Oklahoma case, uh, also involving a member of the Sackler family, which could have been taken as supportive of some of uh, the filings by the Massachusetts Attorney General. You've written about this um, and the, the, the alleged Project Tango. So perhaps let's talk a little bit about the impact of uh, the litigation turning away from sort of the the pharma companies to an extent uh, to involve these non-corporate uh, defendants, these family members. Yeah, that's definitely what's happened. And it's really interesting. Massachusetts and New York, like you said, have been most aggressive, but Rhode Island and um, Utah have also pled the Sacklers in as defendants now taking, you know, their lead from uh, New York and um, Massachusetts. And this has sort of happened on the backs of a couple of events. One is the Project Tango documents, which showed not only that the Sacklers knew that they were misleading physicians and the public about the addictive nature of slow-release OxyContin, but also doubling down on that and saying there's a huge uh, addiction treatment market that's going to be expansive here based on what we're doing and that we need to tap into that. And I did write a bit about that. The New York Times has covered that. And a very interesting read is the um, the New York's de- uh, complaint against the Sackler, which includes diagrams and all sorts of documents from Project Tango. But the Sacklers may have shot themselves in the in the foot or Purdue may have shot itself in the foot by announcing that bankruptcy might be a strategy here. So there, it was this was very good to create real life villains in litigation. Uh, that's just a smart tactical move by these states uh, that helps with public opinion. Um, it puts a lot of pressure on the family, which is very wealthy. But it's, it was also responsive to trying to trap them and sort of suggesting that the way out of here, the way out of this for Purdue was bankruptcy and reorganization on the back end so that they would not have the resources to pay folks the sort of settlements that folks thought they were entitled to on the back end of all of this misbehavior. So um, those those cases are very interesting. And I obviously expect that... Um, Several other jurisdictions will plead the Sacklers then now. So then we come to the Oklahoma settlement and the details of it. And you talked before about some of the MDL local governments that apparently the state attorney general was <laughs> including in this settlement. One of the things that's probably quite noticeable about the Oklahoma settlement was that only $12.5 million out of the $270 million um, was... Uh, uh, to be directed to cover the opioid-related costs incurred by Oklahoma's uh, local uh, governments. And that really is not a very large sum of money um, uh, to cover their costs. In fact, it's, what, a, a fifth of the sum in that settlement set aside for attorney's fees and litigation expenses. And it's a, a mere drip in the pool compared to uh, the other payment of over $100 million to fund um, a new center for addiction studies and treatment at uh, Oklahoma State University. So looking at the Oklahoma settlement overall um, and maybe contrasting it with prior settlements, what, in Kentucky and West Virginia, Jen? How, how, did you, how did you read the Oklahoma settlement, the dollar amount involved, and, and the timing of it, um, which are, all of which I thought were interesting? The timing of it's very interesting because the trial judge there had really put his foot down and said, I'm not delaying a trial any further. So sort of certainly one of the thoughts here is that they, you know, Purdue did a cost benefit analysis and decided that it was more favorable for, for the 
them to settle than to have this a public trial, which could, of, of course, have huge impacts on the many, many outstanding cases that you and I have already discussed. I, I personally was very disappointed in what we actually know about the settlement. As you've noted, $12.5 million went to local government entities who overwhelmingly have bared the burden of costs between local firefighters, EMS, etc., uh, and local treatment on the issue. Uh, another $20 uh, million went directly to treatment. And it effectively, uh, the, the way it's described by the New York Times and other media outlets, is Purdue donating $20 million worth of treatment opioids. Um, so folks can take what they will from that. But what we know for sure is that $32.5 million is about half of what the attorney's fees were. So that that's very disappointing, especially since Oklahoma had spent a lot of time, effort, and money putting on expert evidence showing that the cost to the state, and most of which devolved to the local entities, uh, to abate the crisis over the next 20 years would be somewhere north of $8.7 billion. Um, so looking at all of that, uh, that's disappointing. The history of this is disappointing. Uh, West Virginia, which had a very small, just double digit settlement, um, with Purdue immediately spent money building a brand new state police academy facility, which housed the state of the art gym that cost millions of dollars. Uh, that was famously reported. Um, so immediately spent almost a quarter of the money on state police facilities. And then, um, even somewhat more scandalously, the then governor of West Virginia, Joe Manchin, had proposed purchasing $3 million worth of uh, governor helicopter services, buying a state helicopter, and that got the kibosh put on it, but um, that was part of the proposal. So a full 50% of the money would have gone to things that I don't think you and I would fairly characterize as helpful in, in abating the harm that's been done here. So whereas the Oklahoma settlement was much, much, much larger than these $10, $24 million settlements that we'd seen before in Kentucky and West Virginia, the where the resources are actually going is is uh, quite troubling. Uh, that $12.5 million to the local entities in Oklahoma certainly is a gross uh, under, that's just a gross underpayment um, based on their actuarial analysis of what the costs have been over time. Yeah, I think there are so many unanswered questions about the Oklahoma settlement. If Purdue really was considering bankruptcy, why didn't it declare for Chapter 11 before the scheduled May date for the trial? Why go into to settlement at this point? And is the Attorney General of Oklahoma's um, statement that this is a bankrupt, bankruptcy-proof settlement, is that something that actually will stand up? Or if uh, Purdue later was to go into uh, Chapter 11, uh, would this be would these amounts be dragged back? Um, uh, beyond my scope of practice, certainly, but uh, but questions that, that will be asked. So you, you talked about the the West Virginia settlement essentially flowing into the state's general revenue. And so I suppose, at least at first sight, the Oklahoma settlement is an improvement on that, right? If you if you characterize what happened in West Virginia as basically tracking what happened in most states after the tobacco settlement, where we're talking about sums of money that are likely far larger than what we'll see in any opioid settlement. And obviously, with the tobacco monies, these monies um, uh, uh, continue uh, ad infinitum until presumably uh, the last lung has collapsed 
and turn black from the very last cigarette, at which point the uh, the settlement money will stop. But those states tended not to put too much of the money into, for example, smoking cessation, youth programs, or or even healthcare programs, although they did use the monies to pay some of their Medicaid costs and so on. Where the comparison between opioids and the tobacco settlement, I think, get even more interesting, however, are in what I'd call the non-monetary, or if you like, the public health remedies that we did see in the tobacco settlement. And there were some real, I think, public health remedies there. There were prohibitions on direct and indirect targeting of youth, prohibitions on the use of cartoon characters in marketing. Um, you know, you you had to, uh, there, were, there were restrictions on outdoor advertising, uh, product samples, um, lobbying against kinds of tobacco control legislation. There was an agreement to no longer sort of suppress tobacco health-related research and so on and so forth. So, so there were some actual sort of public health remedies in the tobacco situation, even though the, the monetary piece of it was very disappointing uh, in that the money was not used for public health. At least there were some public health remedies. Where are the public health remedies in the opioid settlement or potential settlement? My, my guess as I was watching live the Oklahoma Attorney General's press conference when he was announcing the settlement and standing next to him, I think, was either the president of, the, of Oklahoma State University or the dean of the medical school or something like that. And I could, I could just imagine that, uh, that every uh, state uh, university president or uh, med school uh, uh, CEO uh, getting on the phone to their state attorney generals at that point, saying, "Hey, that's a really good idea. Why don't why don't you uh, why don't you settle with them and get us one of those um, uh, treatment uh, resource uh, uh, centers at our university? Is there anything else that would, looking forward, do something important, do something to improve public health? You know, reduce, if, if you like, the diseases of despair that we see the opioid uh, overdose uh, epidemic." being part of. It's easy to say, give us some public health remedies, but what would they be, Jen? Yeah, it is easier said than done, but sort of some of the things that you would definitely want to see, particularly in the rural Appalachian states, as I mentioned, there's many counties that don't even have a provider um, that's qualified to, um, you know, treat use disorder. So I would have loved to see, for example, in the West Virginia settlement, you know, incentives, monetary incentives to bring maybe young doctors into the state that would provide this kind of treatment and build up some infrastructure for it. Anything that would encourage evidence-based providers to come to the state to actually deal um, with use disorder and things of that nature would be wonderful. Um, again, although it's complicated from a separation of powers perspective about how much a state's attorney general can legislate or regulate in these settlements, um, again, syringe exchange programs, we've talked about that previously, um, them being in a support of safe injection sites, more education on all sorts of different levels to young people, um, and, um, and expanded treatment um, because many, many folks do not want to get into this business right now. And as you probably know, the, some, only about some odd 10% of folks with use disorder are actually receiving evidence-based treatment in the United States right now. So to me, that would be a huge target and money and resources really can do a lot on that front. So I, I would have loved to have seen some of that kind of program. 
jamming in the Oklahoma settlement. Or some kind of, again, it's difficult to see exactly how you would frame it, but some kind of injunctive relief that, as I've argued, would keep the drug companies on the hook. Yep. That, um, you know, they should be paying, if they profited, uh, they should also be paying for the abatement. So they should be paying for the naloxone. They should be paying for uh, the medication-assisted treatment going forward. Yes. There haven't really been too many sort of specific proposals. I mean, um, uh, going back to our friend Judge Polster in Cleveland, he said early on that not only did he want a monetary settlement, but he wanted some sort of public health remedies as well. About the only thing that we've sort of seen suggested, other than the Oklahoma um, OSU payment, has come out of New York. New York actually did a little number in one of their um, budgets and uh, passed a what's called the Opioid Stewardship Act. And that is basically a tax on all opioid distributions. Um, of course, it was struck down by federal district court because of its impact on interstate commerce. Um, but some kind of ongoing uh, requirement, I think, it would be interesting. I, I agree with you on that. And the New York example is actually unfortunate because they did actually try to do that. And I, again, like I said, I know that there are a lot of complex litigation scholars that are worried, notwithstanding what happened with tobacco, and you've already well explained that, that things going to the general fund is very dangerous uh, about how much authority the chief litigators, the state's attorney generals and folks like that have to, you know, sort of designate these, you know, sort of legislate from the settlement agreement or regulate from the settlement agreement um, on these matters. But I, like you, would have liked to seen really specific money going to treatment drugs, uh, treatment providers, placements for treatment providers in states, monies funneled to prisons and jails explicitly for MAT and evidence-based treatment. I would at least like to see um, some jurisdictions try to add those those injunctive relief provisions to their settlement agreements. Well, unfortunately, time is pressing and we need to bring uh, this twill to its end. But I, I, I don't know whether you're a gambler um, and, and we must recognize that gambling also is um, an addiction and uh, it should not be encouraged. But maybe I won't ask you to put money on the table, but at least stare into the great legal and policy crystal ball in front of us. Um, when are we going to see a settlement? And it's a two-part question, I guess. When will be the first sort of major global-like settlement or partially global settlement? And secondly, will it start in Cleveland or will it start in the States? Well, I think the States are already leading the way and we've already discussed that. And Oklahoma is actually a big deal from that perspective. It's very hard to look into the crystal ball here. But one thing that we did learn from Oklahoma is that we're likely to see a settlement sooner when the district court judge puts his foot down and actually sticks with the trial date. Um, because like I said, there was a real interesting timing. You pointed this out. Real interesting timing here. The, the trial judge in Oklahoma put his foot down. We're not delaying anymore. And I'm going to, he also said, interestingly, I'm going to allow TV cameras in here. And um, after he released that order, there was a, a fairly uh, fast settlement. If that's any guide, I would say we'll see action, settlement type action here um, as these state and federal district judges get real sticky with uh, trial dates, um, because that's the best guide we have so far. Purdue certainly didn't want to go forward with a, a legitimately public in the sense that it would be televised 
televised trial in Oklahoma right now. So I think that's something really important for uh, the judges presiding over these cases and plaintiffs' counsel to um, keep in mind. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Oliver for joining me. You can find her on Twitter at Jen D. Oliver. Thank you so much for coming on the pod, Jen. That's two pods in a row. Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Nick. I've had a wonderful time. Show notes are at twill.com. I'm Nicholas Terry on Twitter. That's at Nicholas Terry. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>